when I was in first grade, um, I went to a, a private Christian school until I was in eighth grade, and then I went to public school for high school. And in first grade, the school that I went at had two different buildings, and the library was in one, and then the whole elementary school was in the other. And so we had gone to the library, and we were walking back, and just had this distinct memory. We were walking in a line, and uh, the, the kid in front of me bent down to tie his shoe. And in that moment, I just said, oh, this is a great opportunity to just give him a boot, right in the, boom. So I just, I, just, I just let him have it, you know. And of course, Mrs. West, she was, she was a very good teacher, very strict. She, she saw it immediately, and I was like, oh, man, you know. And I remember just, you know, just kind of feeling, feeling like, why did I do that? You know, I'm in trouble, and I probably felt a little bit of like, oh, I probably shouldn't have kicked that kid. Mostly it was part about being in trouble. Also, when I was young, maybe about five or six years old, my parents were part of this international dinner group, and they would get together with these, these families in our, in our area, you know, like once a month or so, and have a picnic, and they'd all, you know, bring meals around a certain theme, you know, so Italy or, you know, Southeast Asia or, now it's 20 years ago, probably wasn't that, you know, it was a little, that was a little too exotic for most people back then, okay? And we went to this public park, and there was lots of other people there as well, and I can remember playing on this rock. It was, it was, it was you know, probably about you know, 10, 15 feet diameter, kind of some different sections and just kind of crawling around there with somebody else and, and playing. And this, this girl that I didn't know, she wasn't from our group, she was just was in the park with her family, came over with her little sister and they were going to play on the rock. And I'd like, I yelled at them and I said, no, this is my rock, you know, I'm playing on this. I could tell you story after story in my life as I thought about this the past couple of days of places where I have reacted and done something without even thinking that's hurt someone else whether it was out of fear, anger, selfishness. As I thought about different things that I, had, that I have said that were really mean, I just thought, I can't even tell you those stories because it's just, it's just too hurtful to even share. I, just, I can see the pictures in my mind sitting across from dinner and just giving this sharp, this sharp tongue, oh, just to somebody just to cut them down. And another time saying to someone to something at a reception after a wedding that was just really hurtful to them and selfish and full of fear. I just can't even tell the stories, right? Sarcasm gone wrong, a cutting remark, putting someone in their place, fear of speaking the truth that led to saying something that was not. In addition to all just the, you know, the, the stupid things that I've said and put your foot in your mouth. But mostly what I'm talking about is oftentimes we, we react in the moment to things in our lives and we go, oh my gosh, what just came out of me? As we later reflect on that. The question I want to ask today is a really simple one. It's just, how do we live a life of love when so often we find ourselves reacting, and especially with our, with our mouth, tearing people down or cutting them up? How do we get to a place where our reaction becomes love and not fear or hate? We've been going through this series, as Michaela said, on tending your heart. And we've been talking about, hey, prayer is really a two-way conversation. We were made to commune with God, just as Jesus does in the Gospels. And that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, that God put his spirit on people and Pentecost. So that now the Holy Spirit is within us. It's no longer a devil over here and a little angel over here. God is within us, speaking to us. And yes, there's other voices around us that could even be evil spirits, but we have a God that speaks all through the scriptures and communicates with people, and now he is actually inside of us. And so in this series, 
we've seen how this takes time to develop this conversational language. Just as the little boy Samuel had to learn to recognize God's voice, we're on a journey of learning to recognize God's voice. And last week we talked about, hey, much in life, right, we, 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 we live out of a certain place because we've been wounded. We're all just little kids walking around with bleeding hearts. Places where we've been wounded by our own parents, by our siblings, friends, and even into adulthood, places where we've been hurt. And when we get hurt, oftentimes the devil wants to come and teach us a lie about that God is not good or that we stink, right? That we're no good, that, 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 that we're terrible people that, that God couldn't, couldn't possibly love. And so the battle is to go through forgiveness to get those lies out of our hearts. And so today I want to talk about, hey, how do we, how do we kind of walk through life and get to a place where even our reactions are a place of love. So to do this, we're going to read a very famous passage, one of the greatest sermons, if not the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And we're going to look at the book of Luke, chapter 6, to answer this question. Luke, chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 12, if you want to turn there, and it, it'll probably be on the screen as well. Already is. Come on, Anita. You're the best. All right, Luke 12, sorry, Luke 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, who he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Jesus calls the 12, and then here's the next thing that happens. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Boom. That's amazing. You could talk a lot about that. Man, couldn't hold it back. Here comes the sermon. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, Turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone, if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. 
then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Wow. Jesus picks his disciples, and then with the crowd there says, okay, and now this is what it means to follow me. Let's just start you off, off on the, you know, the, the, easy, the, easy, the easy road road here first, right? The beginner track. Just, you know, love your enemies and be willing to suffer. Okay, I thought that was going to be funny. He's just hitting them with, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Loving your enemies and being willing to suffer. Looking for an eternal reward rather than an earthly one. Turning the other cheek. Blessing those who curse you. Praying for those who mistreat you. Right? Lending. Giving away when people take from you. Don't demanding things back. It's a pretty amazing calling, what Jesus asks us to do. How on earth can we do that? I mean, it's hard to love people that love you, let alone enemies. Here's the first thing. You have to have a new heart. If you're going to follow Jesus and live a life of love, you've got to have a heart that is new. It is, it, is a, it is a statement that these disciples made, obviously all but Judas, who was the traitor, to say, yes, Jesus, I am following you. You are worth it all. You are worth suffering, being considered poor, right? All these things that he listed in the Beatitudes that are the, ap- the opposite of what you would think, right? Rejoicing in our suffering. You're saying, Jesus, I give you my life. You are worth it. I want you more than anything else. I offer you my life. I receive your forgiveness and I receive your life in its place. In the place of my sin, the places that I have messed up, I receive forgiveness. And in place of that, I receive the life of God. Jesus is calling these guys, right, to follow him. And when we follow Jesus, we get a new heart. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we believe in him, we put our trust in him that he is our savior, that we cannot save ourselves, God gives us a new heart. No longer is this heart desperately wicked and full of deceit. That is not the heart that I have because I have the heart of Jesus inside of me. If we are going to follow Jesus, we need a new heart. And when we put our faith in him, God makes us new. We are, the metaphor the Bible uses is you are born again. You're born afresh. It is a new start. The old part of us dies. That old person that we didn't really want to be anyways is dead. Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. It is no longer I now who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Right? I am a dead man walking around who has now been resurrected with Jesus and given a new heart, a new life, a new mind, a new way of thinking. Right? I am not the Christ, but the Christ lives in me. Right? Okay, so many of you are sitting there saying, okay, I did that when I was five. I still am struggling to love people. Is there, is there something else? Yes, there is. We are on a journey to become more and more like Jesus. And I think in the rest of this passage, he has a clue for us as to how we live out this amazing section of being willing to suffer and be afflicted and also love our enemies. So verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. 
Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And now here is what I believe is the climax. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. A good person brings good things out of the good stored up in his or her heart. And an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. And there's the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. Guys, this is what I see in this passage. I think I highlighted it as I was reading it. A good person brings good things out of the good stored in their heart. To get to a place where we are reacting in love, when anytime we are bumped, what spills out as love is that we are storing up love in our heart. It is out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. And for each of us, there's, there's stuff that's stored up in our heart. Right? For many of us, there's, there's, there's wounds and lies. Right? There's other bad things that have happened in our life that we're holding either against God or against other people. That, that stuff needs to come out through forgiveness, as Jesus mentions again in this passage. And then we also need to enter into a process we are continuing to keep bad stuff out of our heart. We are working every day to keep fear and hatred out of our hearts. And we do that moment by moment through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Be smart, tend your heart. The proverb says, above all else, guard your heart. Right? For, for from your heart spr springs life, flows life. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Okay? So our goal, the way to live a life of love, is to go to the source. God is love. We love because he first loved us. Love is from God. The only way to live a life of love is to store up good in our hearts, meaning that we are receiving love from God moment by moment, day by day, recognizing that there's never a moment that God is not pouring out his love on us, his affection for us, and resisting everything around us with God's help. We're going to watch a video now that's going to explain this as we just do our last week here, and, and uh, Rick's going to tell us a little bit about how to do that. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over or guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the springs of life. 
We have to guard our hearts because they're under attack from the enemy. And we need to do it with all diligence because our life depends upon it. Everything we do and say and even think is a result of what is going on in our hearts, as Jesus says in Matthew 15. So how do we develop a proactive lifestyle? Don't wait until you're triggered by anxiety, discouragement or whatever. Intentionally invite Jesus into your moments throughout your day. Share your day with him. Open your heart to receive from him. Ask him about it. In the shower. In the car. You may ask, Jesus, what are you teaching me right now? How do you want me to respond to this? Remember that to kill intimacy, the enemy will attack the character of the Father or our true identity in Christ. So we can proactively fortify those areas and then are able to more easily resist his lies. Father, what do you want to tell me about yourself that will help me trust you more? How do you want me to see you today? Or, Father, what does my heart need to hear from you right now? What identity do you want to speak over me today? First thing in the morning, I may ask, what do you have for my heart today, Father? Often he'll say something like, more joy? See, my temptation is to plot on and try and do the right thing. But if there's no joy, then there's a problem. He once said, in my presence is fullness of joy. So, Rick, who have you been hanging out with? So I recognize I need his joy and I'm learning to receive it and walk in it and rejoice more. Maybe I'm feeling pressure of what I think needs to happen that day. So often he says to me, I've got this, relax. A few words like that can totally change my day if I learn to receive it. As we receive his personal words of life, we will more easily recognise the enemy's tactics and have the strength to resist and not be moved when the storms come. Now to the second section. So what should we do if we're triggered? Respond quickly when we're triggered. To grow in intimacy with God, be attentive to your heart and take note of anything that moves you away from peace and rest throughout the day. Disappointment, discouragement, fear, worry, lust, anger. Before we do anything else, we should choose to turn to Jesus. If we don't turn to Jesus and let him meet our need, we'll fill our hearts with something else. Maybe if we're feeling lonely or bored, we may gravitate to social media or entertainment or food, or we make ourselves busy. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. In the Amplified, it says, agitated. He's not going to command something that is beyond us. We may have had a difficult day, but if we have the Holy Spirit, the helper inside us, then we're free to choose where our hearts go. We don't have to be stressed about it. We're not victims. Imagine the freedom if we refused any anxious thought. A young lady wrote Diane seven months after a time of listening prayer. She said this, I would cycle out of deep, deep depression every few days. There hasn't been a trace of depression in me, none. My life is totally different now as I see myself as a daughter of God the Father. Tending your heart has been the key to it all.
She simply rejected the negative thoughts, asked the Father for what he had to say, and received it. Next, we ask, when we move from that place of security and rest, turn your heart and mind to God and ask him aloud if you can, Father, what is this really about? Don't introspect here. We're guessing. He knows. So let's ask him. And listen, and don't discount what you receive. Often that very first impression is God. He may reveal sin that you need to repent of, a lie you're believing, someone you need to forgive, a spirit you've given access to. So we recognize what he's saying honestly and humbly, admit any lie or any action that we need to take and follow his lead. Maybe we need to forgive others, renounce any lies, repent for partnering with the enemy. So as we deal with these triggers, it's a picture of the parable of the sower, which is all about the listening heart. With God's help, we're getting rid of the rocks and the weeds that stop the seeds, the words that he speaks to us, from getting down into the soil, into our hearts, and bearing the fruit that he intends. Otherwise, he can tell me all day he loves me or whatever, but if I'm believing lies or there's bitterness in my heart, I won't be able to receive his words. They'll just bounce off. So what we're doing in tending our hearts is clearing the way so when the Father speaks his words of life and truth, we can really receive it and be transformed. Now to the third part, receiving and exchange. It starts with an empty heart invites attack. Jesus' lesson here is huge. This is taken from the passage in Matthew 12 where a spirit leaves a house and the guy is sweeping it clean and keeping it in order. Of course, he doesn't want that spirit in there. But the spirit returns, finds the house is empty, so he gets seven more spirits, more wicked than himself, and now there are eight demons in that man's heart and he's in more bondage than ever. So it's very important that when we clear our heart of lies, that we fill not just our minds, but our hearts with the truth so that the enemy can't get his foot in the door. If we're bombarded with lies and temptations, I suggest it's because we've not been filling our hearts with the truth. There's a vacancy sign over the door, and the enemy will be glad to keep us company. So I ask the Father, how do we fill our hearts? First, we need to ask the Father for truth that our hearts need in exchange for the lies. He showed me Ephesians 6.16 where it says that the shield of faith quenches all the fiery darts of the enemy. Wow. I thought, well, what is the shield of faith? He led me to Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word there refers to the rhema, the living, personal, spoken word to me. As I receive these words, I'll be shielded from all the enemy's lies. Even the next verse where it says the sword of the spirit is the word of God is also referring to the rhema word, the living personal word to me. So both the sword and the shield are the words that he has for me personally. Of course, the Lord can speak to us from the scripture, the written word, the logos, which he often does. But it's the word that the Holy Spirit highlights for us that comes to life, that becomes our sword to overcome the enemy. So the more we know the scripture, the more the Holy Spirit can quicken specific words to us that he knows we need. So once we've cleared our hearts of any lies or blockages to intimacy, we ask, Father, what truth do you have for my heart in exchange? 
It's amazing to me how eager he is to encourage us. You'll find it very helpful to journal what he says or shows you. Treasure what he gives you and he'll give you more. Create a listening journal where you write a question and then write until the flow stops. Then you can always run it by someone you trust to make sure you're not going over some theological cliff or something. Of course, it's never going to replace scripture, but I've personally found it very encouraging to go back and read what he has said to me because he knows me so well and is able to give me just what I need. So lastly, rejoice. Remember that we need to receive the words into our hearts. And the way we do this is by declaring and rejoicing in the truth that he speaks. As Proverbs said, there is life as well as death in the power of the tongue. When we speak his words, the Holy Spirit within will bear witness to the truth and we find our hearts becoming ignited and we begin to experience the reality that changes us. So if you get something simple like, I love you, don't blow it off like I did at first. Declare it and rejoice in it until it resonates in your heart. Thank you that you love me, that you will always love me, that nothing I do will stop you loving me. Thank you that you're committed to me, that I can depend on your love no matter what. I encourage people to unpack what he says and ask him more questions. So ask him, why do you love me? Father, what do you enjoy about me? We have such a distorted view of God that we don't expect much. He prepares a banquet and we walk away from the table with a few nachos. He's not going to force feed us, but Jesus promises to fill the hungry. So he says to ask and keep on asking. So keep unpacking with more questions until it's practical and helpful. For example, if he gives you peace in exchange, you may ask, how can I experience your peace as I face this challenge? How can I cooperate with you to enjoy this peace? How can I encourage my wife so she can experience your peace? Then rejoice and thank him. Sometimes tending your heart can be as simple as, I reject that negative thought. Jesus, what do you have for me? Or, I reject that spirit of heaviness. Father, what do you have to refresh me? And rejoice in it. As we simply and proactively turn to the Father, he will tell us more about what he is really like and who he has created us to be. And we'll find our desire to stay connected to him will grow. And he will get more glory and we'll get his joy. Amen. Let's have the band come back up. And we're going to take communion if the communion uh, servers could come forward to close the service. And this is just my, my ask for you. Why don't we stand? Um, just have one thing that I want you to do before you come forward for communion, and we're going to take it kind of as we always do at the harbor, just whenever you are ready, you can come forward. I just want you to ask the Lord one question. What this is really all about, guys, is just a dynamic, awesome friendship with God. So the one question I just want to leave you with today to ask God to speak to you is just, God, what is the next step in my relationship with you? Or what is the one thing, God, that would, that would really bless you or how can I be, God, what's one step I can take in being a better friend to you? All right? So would you ask God that question and just listen for a response. And once you feel like you've got it, come forward and receive communion. So, Lord, we just bless these elements right here. And, Jesus, we just thank you for your sacrifice that gives us freedom. 
new life, forgiveness for our sins. And we just confess, Jesus, we are not the Christ. You are the Messiah, but you are now in us if we believe in you. So we receive your sacrifice and your Holy Spirit who is in us. Thank you, Jesus.